0: Have you heard? 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 Have Have you heard? Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
1: And I'm Jack Schneider.
0: And Jack, our topic today is one that, frankly, I think has not gotten enough attention in world, as I think of it. And that would be the unbelievable number of laws enacted this summer that target trans kids.
1: Yeah, not only is there not enough attention that in many cases, there's not enough concern. I think it may be easy for people who see that as just so blatantly inhumane that they assume that, you know, there's no way that that could possibly be carried out. Uh, Or if it were, it couldn't be enforced. Or if it were enforced, that ultimately uh, the imperative of human dignity would uh, be a kind of substantive barrier uh, to any sort of detrimental action against kids. And I don't think any of that's true. Uh, I, I think it's a clear and present danger.
0: Well, part of the reason that I thought that we should really focus on this is that in many ways, these are education laws, right? That these are very focused on on schools and the kids in them. The laws that have gotten the most attention are the ones banning trans athletes, right? The specter of former boys competing as girls in girls sports. And I think in many ways, the response was similar to what we've seen with the, the attempt to push back against the claims about critical race theory that, you know, like, oh, that doesn't really happen, right? When when obviously there's something else going on here. Some of these laws also essentially deputize teachers, uh, requiring them to report on on kids who might be straying from their biological gender. It's really just like if you read through uh, what these laws do, it's, it's really creepy and the idea that schools are right in the middle of them, sends a chilling message, but I also think that this issue relates very directly to the bigger themes we've been raising on this show of late, and that is how do these efforts to curb democracy and the real assault we're seeing on public education at the state level, how do they relate and how do they keep coming back to this question of who gets to be represented and who gets to participate in public life?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make, uh, that when people push back against this stuff with factual responses, they say like, well, actually, let's count the number of young people who were born as males, uh, that that was the sex at birth biologically, and who identify as females. Let's, Let's count the number and see if this is real or not. They are totally missing the point, right? That... This is about politics, this is about symbolism, and the way to push back against it is not by engaging in a kind of fact-based discussion or debate, it's actually to identify what's actually motivating this push, what's behind it, what's the larger play here, and what is the counter-political action.
0: Well, Jack, I've done my part in assembling an all star cast and crew to help us make sense of what's playing out right now. And we're going to need some help from you. Yes, that's right. You need to be prepared to fire up the time machine.
1: Oh, man. Uh, Long time listeners are going to be really excited about this, hopefully, as excited as I am.
0: And new listeners will be very startled. <laughs> This episode starts, as is so often the case with Have You Heard, with me making a new friend on the internet. When a new listener shared on Twitter how much she's been enjoying the pod, I shared my appreciation, and I happened to notice that she has a lot of opinions about trans issues. Her name is Aubrey Calvin, she teaches government at Tarrant County College in North Texas, and I asked her to start just by giving us some context to help us understand the why behind all of these bills targeting trans kids. And Aubrey says that the first thing to keep in mind is that this is a new version of an old story.
2: What we're seeing is more and more efforts to try to keep the right engaged in a level of identity politics where their sense of what's traditional and what's moral and what they've grown up on is being attacked and questioned. So this is really more of a political tactic to help them win elections.
0: In fact, if you look back over the past 60 years, you see the same pattern emerging over and over and over. Conservatives identify a group that they paint as a threat to the moral order. Then as they lose the war against public opinion, they move on to the next vulnerable target.
2: For decades, they were able to say segregation and keeping races separate, all of that is to protect our way of life and our sense of traditional values. And then it became very unpopular to attack people because of race. And then they shifted to say, well, gays and lesbians want to attack traditional values and traditional morality. And this is a country built on good Protestant Christian morals and gays and lesbians wanted to attack that. Well, they kept losing that fight in court against lesbians and gays And the numbers show a greater acceptance of the lesbian and gay community overall. A majority of Americans are very positive towards being gay or lesbian, nobody cares. We went from this society where half of all Americans said gays and lesbians should not have the right to be married, should be able to get fired, shouldn't have any civil rights. And then like overnight it
3: shifted.
0: This year, the target of conservative lawmakers has been the most vulnerable of all—transgender kids. In one state after another, they enacted legislation with names like the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, bans on transgender girls competing in school sports with their same-gender peers. And even though politicians couldn't seem to identify examples of this actually happening, the laws swept across the country with remarkable speed— Aubrey says that's by design.
2: Maybe because I'm a, you know, I'm a community college professor who teaches government year round. So my whole life is talking about politics. The speed of it is makes sense to me. Very few legislators, whether it's Democrat or Republican, do things just in one state if it can have national policy implications. I mean, it's one thing if there's a law about some state monument in your own state. Who cares about that if you're not in that state? But for these bigger issues, what tends to happen is it's a coordinated effort where maybe there's one state that's a test case, but really they want to hit all the states at once. The fact that in 2021, over 30 states had over 100 anti-trans bills, that is the blueprint. Because if it's just one state at a time, then the Human Rights Campaign or the ACLU or Lambda Legal or all of the interest groups... Can focus on that one state but when you do 30 states then you have to have the opposition spread their resources across all those states and you make it seem like it's a national epidemic or that this is what people want nationwide
0: okay so in order to understand how aubrey came to be so passionate and knowledgeable about these issues we need to know a little more about her starting
2: with where she lives I teach government at Tarrant County College in Fort Worth, Texas, which is a pretty conservative county right next to Dallas. I've been teaching government in some fashion. I've been at TCC for over 10 years. I got my bachelor's and master's in political science from Oklahoma State University. My focus has always been on things like constitutional law, minority politics, especially as it relates to race and gender. And I'm a black trans woman.
0: I mentioned the laws banning trans kids, especially girls, from participating in organized sports in school. But that's only one aspect of what's happening. These laws are also aimed at basically discouraging trans kids from existing. For Aubrey, it's hard to contemplate the impact of this kind of hostile legislation on young people without thinking back to her own childhood.
2: I'm not one of these kids that was brave enough to come out as a kid. So everything that's happening in these schools, I never experienced because I was still trying to sort everything out in my head. I grew up a military kid. My dad was in the Air Force. He did 20 years. So my brother, my sister, and I all were born in different places. And I lived in the military environment for the first 13 years of my life. This was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, when I lived on Air Force bases and Army bases where it wasn't don't ask, don't tell. It was you could get dishonorably discharged, lose all your benefits. So I grew up not understanding or knowing anything about gays or lesbians or being trans. And in the 80s, we only existed as a punchline. We didn't exist in popular culture in a level of acceptance. We were the joke.
0: So Jack, In some ways, this is a new issue, right? I think a lot of people were really startled by the speed and ferocity with which this particular issue flared up over the summer. But in other ways, this is a really old battle. And so I think we need you to... Climb into the time machine and take us back to an earlier time when these sort of <laughs> pitched battles over, dare I say, secular humanism, were rearing their heads.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, the you know the phrase wasn't always used. It doesn't really come into use in politics until like the nineteen sixties, and it really enters popular use in the 1980s. There was real concern uh, on the right about secular humanism uh, on the left, this sort of unreligious, amoral uh, tide that was sweeping across America. But one of the things that early observers noted about the rise in concern about secularism and secular humanism, if you're going to use that phrase. Uh, One of the things that they observed was that it actually threatens religious groups who are working to translate their own particular social values into these broad rules for the community at large. It isn't that these religious groups are worried about people not believing in God That would be a misreading of this. It is instead that these religious groups see themselves as in many cases duty bound to enact laws in the secular world that are informed by faith. And for them it's very important to blur the boundary between the sacred and the secular. That there shouldn't really be that boundary and Secular humanism is an easy target, then, because what you're saying is these folks are trying to create a public sphere that essentially bans all religiously informed approaches to politics and policy. And uh, there's a, an interesting book from 1958, Creeds in Competition. And it points out uh, a sort of long history of this stuff, right? Laws forbidding business on Sundays. Um, you know, Laws regulating the sale of alcohol. Uh, bans on abortion, uh, the elimination of prayer in public schools. And that last one, right, that's not that it was something that religious groups were fighting, in some cases, it was something that religious groups were in favor of, right? Jewish Americans were in favor of eliminating prayer in public schools because it was very awkward for their kids when that was happening. So there's a long history here uh, of pushback against, you know, this so-called secular humanism, as well as an effort to blur the boundary between sacred and secular.
0: Thank you, Jack, for that little bit of time travel. Now back to the present. I recently heard an interview with scholar Jules Gill-Peterson about the anti-trans lobby's real agenda. She made an argument that I thought was really interesting. Gill-Peterson said that for a lot of people, this is really the first time that they're being introduced to the very existence of trans individuals. And so one of the reasons that religious conservatives are pushing back so hard right now is that they see this as an opportunity to define for us what transness means. Aubrey told me that this argument resonates with her, in part because she remembers what it was like when trans individuals had no place in the culture at all.
2: So I didn't know anything about being trans as a term until high school, and I was too afraid to really accept it. I went through a lot of my college years and my early 20s trying to figure out and understand what all of this meant. My socialization as a child was just copying my older brother. I mean, we're two years apart. I didn't understand, quote unquote, boy world. So my strategy was for years to do what he did as long as it worked for me. And there were parts of it that didn't work for me, but my way of coping was to do what he did publicly and privately in my writing, in the books that I read. It was very much female oriented in the cartoons and the TV I watched. In the 80s, everything was boys or girls stuff. So a lot of what I did privately was more the girl side of things and I didn't come out until I was in my 30s with a wife and daughter so I waited until I couldn't anymore basically
3: I
0: want to share just a bit of audio from that interview with Jules gill peterson It's one of the best, and by best, I mean most disturbing, explanations I've heard about the real goal of these laws. This is from an exchange she had with Doug Henwood on his podcast, Behind the News, earlier this year.
3: These bills are not symbolic. Let's look at what they do. They'll take away your ability to go to the doctor. Right. So you're reducing your life chances and not just go to the doctor. But if you're trans and you want to transition and you can't, I mean, that's a life and death situation for a lot of people. Uh, It's not hyperbole. A lot of folks who have testified against these bills. Pediatricians, for example, have said some of my patients will die if these bills are passed because I will no longer be allowed to support their gender identity and provide them with health care. Right. Uh, Other set of bills make it impossible for you to participate in equal education. Put a target on your back in school. Some of the bills, like in North Carolina, would legally require teachers to out- Any student who displayed quote unquote gender nonconforming behavior to their parents, that's not symbolic. That's a real material harm. And so what happens is these bills are trying to reduce the life chances of trans people. They are in the outcome hoping to discourage trans people from existing by trying to prevent their development as children, trying to prevent trans children from growing up to be trans.
0: For Aubrey, the fact that it's the state enforcing this discriminatory worldview adds another layer of, shall we say, complexity. Remember, she's a community college teacher, and it's her job to teach her students about how government works. And watching some of her students grapple with the fact that the government is now coming after them is really painful.
2: I didn't have the courage to come out or the words or the ability to come out in high school and middle school. I didn't understand enough about myself. And to see these kids that do understand all of that and have such a strong sense of themselves, be told they have to basically stay in the closet or be denied the ability to transition or be who they are, not by their parents, but by their government that's supposed to protect them, that's incredibly sad. In my role as faculty advisor to my community college's Gay Straight Alliance Club, some of the members in my group aren't out to their parents yet because they're afraid to come out. So for some of them, it's such a battle just to be accepted by their family. It's scary that the government is coming after them, especially a segment of the government that for years, as Republicans have said, were small government. We support keeping the government out of your life. We support as little government involvement in what you do until it comes to the bedroom or your medical decisions. That hypocrisy and that hypocritical nature of it, that's the infuriating part. In
0: Texas, students who attend state colleges and universities are required to take a course in Texas history that extends up through the present. As the instructor for this course, Aubrey has found herself doing a delicate dance.
2: We talk about these bills and what's going on in the state legislature. Students have to learn this. One of the main architects of the anti-trans bills in the Texas state legislature is my state representative. He represents my district. He is literally the person who is supposed to represent me, not figuratively, like I'm in his district. And that's distressing. I'm always trying to figure out how do I talk about these things in class in a way where I am not pushing my agenda? Because I want to be clear, I don't speak for Parent County College in any way, shape or form, and I don't use my classroom to push any of my viewpoints. So I try to just talk about them and get students to discuss these issues. I've gotten really good at being able to explain both sides of this issue because my job is not to push my agenda on my students. But living in Texas, where they did have a special session mainly for this and for other things, it's hard. It's scary. I feel bad for my students.
0: So, Jack, I don't know if you remember, but we did an interview with a gentleman Earlier this year, it was one of the, it, one of our few sort of conservative interlocutors and the issue of, of trans kids came up in that interview. He shared with us an anecdote. I think it was about his how his wife had had taught in an urban school and that the school had the practice of asking kids about their pronouns. And he thought this was the most ridiculous thing that he had ever heard, that this was a school where kids needed to be focused on numer- numeracy and literacy. And, and so I think, you know, a lot of people probably look look at this issue in that light but after hearing Aubrey and and thinking about the Issue in a more sort of fundamental way. It really got me thinking about a remark that you made in a recent episode we did about how the assault on democracy and the intensifying efforts to dismantle public education are related. And you made this comment about how, you know, it all comes down to the question of who gets to be represented. And I thought about those kids and their pronouns, and that in some way, this guy was saying, you know that that they don't need to be represented, and that's a really chilling way to think about it,
1: yeah. I remember that interview clearly uh, it came as quite a surprise, and I have not listened to the audio from it because I don't want to drive any traffic their way, including my own traffic. But I do wonder if they included the audio of me yelling at them for asking such a silly and inhumane question. Um, You know, I think that uh, all of this comes down to the question of who is we here, right? Uh, Who's a part of us? And Another way of framing that is to ask, who gets to participate in public life? Um, I think it's become clear to uh, a number of groups who don't like how America is constituted and the way that it is changing. It's become clear to them that they can't get rid of people, right? And that's what all the wall building symbolism was about. Like, let's get rid of people. And if you can't do that, if you can't win on that, if that is illegal and impractical, um, then the next question is, well, can we drive you underground? Right? Can we drive you underground so we don't have to see you, uh, so that we don't have to engage with your ideas, and so that you can't access our tax dollars? Right? It's essentially a way of privatizing public life And you can think of that two different ways, privatizing public life so that you only have access to it if you have the right characteristics for membership, or privatizing public life in the reverse, where you're essentially privatizing life for people by excluding them from the public sphere. Schools are so useful here, not only because they're our largest public institution serving over 50 million young people, regardless of their paperwork, but also because schools are symbolic Right? that children are symbolic innocents in this who need to be protected uh, from these scary ideas and these scary people who are unlike uh, the, the dominant groups and the majority groups. And then as we've talked about on the show, schools are future-making institutions. And so uh, if you're fighting a war for the future of America, it of course makes sense uh, to bring that inside the schools where young people are learning things like uh, who belongs here. And that's one of the reasons why school integration is so important, right? It's the opposite of what people are trying to do on the right right now. Uh, By including people and sending them to school together, they learn to see the humanity in each other. And it's very hard to exclude someone from public life if they are your equal.
0: Back to Aubrey, she's had a front row seat watching as the focus of conservative political fear-mongering has shifted over the years. And along the way, she's thought a lot about why the LGBTQ community is such a consistent target
2: the same arguments that were used against gay and lesbian people getting married, we just shift the language to talk about trans people in a way to keep people scared, to keep people misinformed. Projections continue to show that a lot of the Republican Party base is shrinking. And so a lot of this are attempts to hold on to fearmonger to the next election. And the difficult thing about being gay or lesbian or trans is that if you're a Republican, this can happen in your family. It's not like race where you can tell people you're not born into or Like if you're a racist, well, don't date Black people or don't date the people who are opposite of you. Don't marry into that kind of race where you can keep that separation. Anyone's family can have queer members in it. Like there's no predictive model here. Anyone's kids can be queer. Anyone's kids. And so that does provide a little bit of fear And I think it also helps the religious right try to maintain a lot of the control that they have.
0: We talked earlier about how one reason for the intensity of the conservative backlash right now is that for many Americans, this is really the first time they've had any exposure to trans individuals. For groups that object to the very existence of trans people, who see them as a threat to the patriarchal family, this is the chance to tell us to be very afraid.
2: You know how people talk about snakes and say snakes are more afraid of us than we are of them? That's basically the same thing with queer youth and trans youth and trans people. We're typically more fearful of the violence that we face and the harassment and the discrimination and the loss of jobs and the economic disparities and being rejected by our families. We're actually more afraid of the cis straight world, then I think the cis straight world should be of us. Y'all are the ones in power. We are a very, very tiny, small percentage of kids in school, of adults. A lot of cis straight people seem very afraid of us. And we're like, you outnumber us like 97% to 3% or whatever. I don't know this, the, the numbers, but yeah.
0: A huge thank you to Aubrey Calvin for sharing her insights and her own story with us. Be sure to check out Aubrey's podcast, Southern Queries, about queer life in the South. It's a great podcast and full of surprises. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss the right's growing turn towards illiberalism and what it means for public education. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. I recently crashed a school choice. Roadshow starring none other than Mike Pompeo and I learned a thing or two to come along just go to patreon.com/ have you heard podcast and become a supporter so Jack after all these weeks when you've been off at various remote locations the precise, Determinants of which have been kept from me. <laughs>
1: that's, that's right. It, it, it was a work from anywhere plan and I knew I would get less work done if you knew where I was, Jennifer.
0: Well, I'm just glad to see you back in your usual remote studio. I just wanted to get that out of the way first. Yeah. and. So while you've been off, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking. I mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago. I think it was in our in the weeds segment that I'm obsessed with this podcast called Know Your Enemy. And when I say I'm obsessed, like I really am. I listen to it all the time. I've gone back and I'm on, you know, like episode three. And and what I like about it is that they are really trying to make sense of what they describe as the growing illiberalism on the right. And and by that they they mean the you know the Tendency to do what we've been talking about in this episode, you know, which is sort of clamp down on who gets to participate in public life. It would be things like these incredible bills restricting what teachers can talk about in terms of history and race and gender. And so for me, that question and how it relates to public education in particular is really the kind of the central one that's that's animating my thinking right now. Um, I feel like too many people in our world, I understand there's a pandemic on, right? Like there's a lot to be focused on and worried about, but I don't see a lot of people in our world Grappling with this, if the right decides that it no longer believes in democracy, and we know from our work with friend of the show, Derek Black, that public education is absolutely foundational to, to democracy, then what use does the right have for public schools?
1: Yeah. And I think <laughs> to make this uh, rain cloud even darker, I think it's important to point out that there's a feedback loop here that the more that people are excluded from public life, the less they will be able to participate in shaping what the future looks like. And I don't just mean at the ballot box, but if particular identities, which are already marginalized, are even further marginalized, uh, what will happen to the collective voice of those people? What will happen to allyship? What will happen to... You know, just this simple ability to relate to people when you are in the ballot box, uh, when your own identity is quite different, but you nevertheless recognize a kind of um, shared enterprise in co-citizenship with those folks.
0: That's such a good point in the interview that I played some clips up with Jules Gill Peterson. One of the points that she makes is that you know that these trans bills all over the country have been treated as, you know, just well, just sort of another thing, right? Like, oh, those wacky Republicans, there they go again. Why are they going after you know uh, something that doesn't even really exist, right in terms of trans athletes? And her point is that you know, like this is they're not stopping here, right? like, like, this is, this is sort of the roadmap for where we're headed next. So absolutely, like, you should be the most worried about this.
1: Yeah. Uh, I want to choose my words here carefully um, because I don't mean to suggest that all of this can be dismissed as symbolic and that there will be no felt impact on young people Uh, or or of uh, adults in our society because there absolutely will be an impact on them. Um, You know, one of the medical professionals who testified against one of these bills said, kids will die as a result of this. Um, So, uh, you know, I am not saying that uh, the symbolism does not have a real and um, very dangerous impact. But I also do wanna say that the purpose of this is in many cases largely symbolic. Uh, that trans kids are ultimately not the, uh, the core target here, right? They're a convenient target right now. Um, and that ultimately the real target is all marginal identities in a white, Christian, patriarchal, individualistic culture. Uh, that you, know, you start by getting people on board with the move to further marginalize those people or to codify their marginalization.
0: Now, I know people listening to this are probably thinking, man, what a downer. How is Jennifer going to, how is she going to rebound and redirect the show back onto its usual chirpy note? Well, it turns out, Jack, that you set me up perfectly for uh, our, the uh, In the Weeds segment that we do for our Patreon supporters, because in this edition, I'm going to be describing a recent field trip I took. Up to New Hampshire to hear Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Betsy DeVos basically lay out exactly the vision you were just alluding to. So if people are like, wait a second, conservative white ethno Christian state, what's that gonna look like? Well, join me as I go to New Hampshire (laughs) to see. Does that sound appealing?
1: Uh, it does. I can't wait to hear if Pompeo's uh, hairdo has become as fully armored as Betsy DeVos's. Uh, you know, it it always struck me that Pompeo had to uh, had to buff up his image a little bit if he had ambitions beyond you know uh, flying around on private jets and meeting with dignitaries in other countries, uh, you know, sometimes to insult them. So I'll be interested uh, to, to hear what you found there, Jennifer. I also want to remind our regular listeners, well, any listener, that there are lots of ways to support the show. Regular listeners, of course, already know this, and uh, they support our show in lots of ways by going on and giving us a review wherever they download the show, because that helps people find it. Make sure that you're a subscriber so whenever a new episode is out, that ends up in your queue. Uh, Go ahead and share the show with people people who you think might enjoy it uh, sometimes you do that via Twitter and you tag the show's Twitter handle at have you heard pod that's always fun to see because Jennifer and I can end up seeing that as well uh, and uh, you know there's there's a book out there I think it's in lots of libraries so uh, make sure that that is in the rotation that the the libraries can't keep it in stock right now
0: and if you would like to hit the road with us, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and sign up to become a supporter. And you can accompany us into the weeds, our subscriber-only access area where we talk about the most interesting things like my trip to New Hampshire to hear former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Betsy DeVos. No mask necessary for this trip, listeners.
1: Did you go to Storyland while you were up there? <laughs>
0: On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
1: And I'm Jack Schneider.
0: This is Have You Heard.